There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River, rolling into Cleveland to the lake. There's a red. In June of 1969, just about a year before our story takes place, a spark from a passing train lit the Cuyahoga River on fire. Rolling into Cleveland to Lake Erie, the Cuyahoga collected industrial pollution along the way. Don't swim in the Cuyahoga, went the old joke. You won't drown, you'll melt. Or burn. Images of a river on fire on the nightly news catalyzed public opinion in America. The environmental movement moved from the fringes into the center of the political conversation. The first ever Earth Day was held on April 22, 1970. In 1972, Congress passed and President Richard Nixon signed the Clean Water Act. It took decades, but eventually the Cuyahoga and Lake Erie came back to life. But let's stay right here in early 1970. The Cuyahoga is U-shaped. At the headwaters, it moves swift, cold, and clean. Nestled along its banks, before it makes that big Cuyahoga bend and starts flowing north into Cleveland, is the splendid little college town of Kent, Ohio. College towns in America are nice places. Nowhere more so than in the Midwest. Ann Arbor, Michigan, Champaign, Illinois, Madison, Wisconsin, Kent, Ohio. Lovely little downtowns right out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Stately brick buildings and big green lawns, dotted with trees and striped with walkways. The university boosts the local economy and lends prestige. The attitude is tolerant, even a bit bohemian. There's usually a small but lively art and music scene. Lots of good, inexpensive places to eat and drink and gather. Joseph Walsh was 22 years old, an English major at Kent State. He'd been there a while. With the draft still on, Joe was in no hurry whatsoever to finish college. He had something going on on the side. A pretty good band called the James Gang that played gigs around the Midwest for decent pay. They even had a record deal. They'd put an album out in 69 and were ready to record another one. Joe was a fluid and intelligent guitarist, a natural and the album caught the ear of some influential people, most notably Pete Townsend. That summer of 1970, Pete would give the James Gang their shot, opening for The Who on a summer tour of America. But we're a little ahead of ourselves now. At this point, late April 1970, as the spring semester comes to a close, Joe hasn't received the offer. He's still at least half-ass committed to getting his degree. Eventually, Kent State would grant him one, uh, but not for quite a while. Woo! 
Christine Ellen Hine was 19, an art major, and just coasting along. Classes in horseback riding, and she'd ask around for the courses with the laid-back professors. She earned just enough credits to not get kicked out. Chrissy was mostly interested in dropping acid, smoking weed, and hanging around the lively local music scene in Kent. In her own telling, she was a little bit boy-crazy, too. Chrissy missed out on all that at Firestone High School in Akron. Uh, Wasn't much going on in Akron, but she would sneak out of the house and go to concerts nearby Cleveland. One thing hadn't changed since high school. The guys she was in love with were the guys she'd never met, the guys who played in bands. So along with drawing and painting, she'd taken up playing guitar and was starting to get somewhere with it, played in a garage band and had some ideas for songs rattling around. Chrissy was still shy about singing, but in time she would get over that. Her musical tastes were mostly at odds with what was on American radio at the time. She wasn't much for the mellow and didn't go for the folkies and the singer-songwriters. The Velvet Underground, early Stones and Kinks were more her speed. The year before, Chrissy got religion from Iggy Pop when she heard the Stooges' first album. Just partying and drifting at Kent, no idea about what was next. Chrissy was certain about one thing, though, determined as hell about it. She was getting out of Ohio. She would see and experience the wider world. Twenty-one-year-old Gerald Casali was into a lot of things. He could write and draw. He was taking guitar lessons from Joe Walsh, and he was keenly interested in the visual arts and filmmaking. Enrolled in the honors program at Kent State, and just a few weeks away from graduating, his friend and classmate Mark Mothersbaugh had similar tastes and interests. Jerry was also active with the Kent State chapter of Students for a Democratic Society, the SDS. We, the people of this generation, bred in at least modest comfort, housed now in universities, looking uncomfortably to the world we inherit. This simple declaration opens the Port Huron Statement, the 1962 Manifesto of the SDS. Further down, it reads, We would replace power rooted in possession, privilege, or circumstance by power and uniqueness rooted in love, reflectiveness, reason, and creativity. Eight years had gone by now, and the Port Huron idealism seemed like a bitter joke to Jerry. In that time, over a million young men had been drafted, including guys he knew growing up, going to Roosevelt High, right there in Kent. A lot of them went to Vietnam, and so far, over 40,000 of them had died there. In 1970, public opinion was contradictory. A solid majority was against the war, but most Americans did not want to simply cut their losses and walk away from Vietnam. President Nixon had promised peace with honor. Throughout 1969 and into 1970, America would cling to this flimsy rhetorical straw. Casualties were tapering off, 
and American troops were coming home in dribs and drabs, a few thousand at a time. Perhaps this new president could find a way out of Vietnam that uh, didn't feel like a humiliating surrender. But even as he made dovish declarations in public and announced troop withdrawals, Nixon massively escalated the air war against North Vietnam. And right after he was sworn in, American B-52s began carpet bombing the neighboring country of Cambodia. Thirteen months later, on Thursday, April 30, 1970, in a nationally televised speech, Nixon announced U.S. ground forces had invaded Cambodia. The years of hope had given way to days of rage. So your brother's bound and gagged And they've chained him to a chair Won't you please come to Chicago Just to sing In a land that's known as freedom How can such a thing be fair Won't you please come to Chicago For the help that we can bring By the spring of 1970, the anti-war movement in general, and the SDS in particular, were adrift and demoralized. Just a couple of years earlier, public opinion seemed to be with them, but that support proved to be fleeting, ephemeral. And upon taking office, the Nixon administration immediately brought the full weight of federal law enforcement down upon them. The Chicago 7, among them Tom Hayden, the author of the Port Huron Statement, were indicted for inciting the riots at the 1968 Democratic Convention. A circus trial started in the fall of 69 and ended the following February. Acquittals on all the federal conspiracy charges, but they ended up going to jail anyway on contempt charges. The trial confirmed something that SDSers had long suspected. They were deeply compromised. Chapters and cells had been infiltrated by undercover cops, snitches, and informants. It wasn't just paranoia. The man really was out to get them. And there was some serious self-inflicted damage. The previous summer's SDS conference, held in Chicago, was chaos. A disastrous clusterfuck that splintered the organization. One of the factions that arose out of the ashes of the Chicago meeting was the Weather Underground. The Weathermen took their moniker from Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues. You don't need a Weatherman to know which way the wind blows. The Weather Underground would bring the war home by building bombs and detonating them at draft offices, military installations, and businesses that contracted with the Pentagon. They purged their ranks of all but the most hardcore members and started planning. On March 6, 1970, one of their bombs exploded prematurely in a Greenwich Village townhouse, a massive blast that incinerated three of their own members. The survivors scattered and went deep underground. Back in Kent, Ohio, Jerry Casale was down for the cause, but in his own telling, the weathermen were a crazy, scary bunch, and he wanted no part of that. He was left with no outlet for his rage against the machine. Jerry had an inkling, a notion that he would use performance art as his weapon, but how? Along with his friends Mark Mothersbaugh and Bob Lewis, he was still working on that part. Events intervened. 
Nixon's Thursday night speech sparked Friday demonstrations on campuses across America, and Kent State was no exception. Jerry was tired of the fight, but galvanized just the same. He would suit up and show up and take his place in front. Chrissy and Joe made the scene on the periphery, taking in the speeches, chanting and cheering. This from Kent State University's official history. An anti-war rally was held at noon on the Commons, a large grassy area in the middle of campus, which had traditionally been the site for various types of rallies and demonstrations. Fiery speeches against the war and the Nixon administration were given. A copy of the Constitution was buried to symbolize the murder of the Constitution because Congress had never declared war, and another rally was called for noon on Monday, May 4th. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcasts presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And now, on with the show. Hey, diggers, welcome to 2021 and welcome to the 1970s. I'm Christian Swain, and this is Rock and Roll Archaeology on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon is the podcast network for music lovers where you'll find all kinds of great content to fill your earbuds in between episodes of the RNRA. Pantheonpodcast.com, you know, or you can find us wherever you get uh, your great listens. I'm really happy to tell you we will be getting these out a bit quicker now. Ow? Uh, I know. We've said this before. And of course, Regardless, it still takes a minute to do them. So while you wait, eh, you know, there's Pantheon. Uh, Dozens of quality music podcasts uh, just about every day. We drop something cool and new for you. Including, if I can, uh, shameless self-promotion here, uh, the sister podcast to Rock and Roll Archaeology, my very own Deeper Digs in Rock. Um, Again, PantheonPodcast.com. Bookmark it. Come back often. We love it. Just do it. Uh, okay, long and short is that the 1970s are about as different as the 1960s were 
in the 50s. The story just gets bigger and bigger. We really need to pick focus points and try to tell interrelated stories that we hope will add up to a good understanding of rock and roll in this decade. Now, don't worry. All the elements of music, culture, and technology will still be in each episode. But we know the story's rapidly changing. And, um, you know, you'll see some of the change coming in this episode. Uh, More focus means less research to make all the elements work together. Uh, You know, the last two episodes we did, 1969, part one, part two, those were huge endeavors to make all those story elements come together. That's why it's part of the reason why it took so long. So, yeah, if we can streamline this, uh, we can focus more on singular subjects um, just because we have to. There's just no way we can, you know, go about it in the same way that we did in the 1950s and certainly in the 1960s. Well, in the 1960s and certainly in the 1950s, much easier way to tell the stories. Um, but we figured out a good way to do this. Uh, so so no concern on your part, okay? I guarantee you'll all be happy uh, with the results. It just might be a little bit shorter, a little bit more concise. Uh, I think... That, that that's probably the way we're going to go. We're going to pick our targets and and still be able to tell uh, the compelling uh, reason why music, culture, and technology uh, created this feedback loop. All right, real quick, um, we have a sponsor. Uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about Harman Audio. If you're unfamiliar with Harman, uh, they're uh, a manufacturer of many great musical products, one of which is AKG. And you know what? They sent us this podcaster's essential package so it came with uh, an akg microphone a usb microphone that plugs directly into your computer and it also has its own compression and preamp in it um so no external preamp uh, is needed it's that's really cool uh, if you ask me very price conscious Plus, uh, it's it's a high-quality microphone. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it, here? Uh, so um, we also got headphones uh, along with it because there's a headphone jack uh, right in the microphone. Very, very cool. Uh, and something that you can use for just about anything, uh, certainly at a price point that you can use for just about anything, uh, not just uh, making podcasts, but, uh, you know, uh, vocal duties uh, on a song uh, or even just to make yourself sound like, you know, a god or goddess remember we are pantheon uh on your next zoom call it's really that simple isn't that cool so go check out uh harman audio or or go check out akg wherever you get uh your good musical equipment all right so like i said up top we've cleared the 1960s the 1970s are here at last rock and roll is now a mature art form and for the next 20 some odd years it's going to dominate popular culture like nothing has before or since we're going to argue at least you uh, can think of this one as a transitional episode and also maybe an epitaph for the 60s we're also introducing some people and starting some story arcs that will be compelling and important as we move through the rock and roll years all right that's it let's get going welcome back again this is episode 20 ohio There is a revolution coming. 
It will not be like revolutions of the past. It will originate with the individual and with culture, and it will change the political structure only as its final act. It will not require violence to succeed. It cannot be successfully resisted by violence. This is the revolution of the new generation. Their protest and rebellion, their culture, clothes, music, drugs, and liberated lifestyle. That's from the back cover blurb for a book called The Greening of America, written by a Yale professor named Charles Reich. It's a breathless panegyric to the ascendancy of the hippie counterculture. It was a big bestseller in 1970. And it was largely true. Back in Chapter 16, we opened with the death of Hippie, the mock funeral staged by the San Francisco Diggers just before the Summer of Love. It was a noble but ultimately doomed effort to take back the youth culture narrative from corporate America. The Diggers saw it all coming. A few years later now, in 1970, middle school kids show up for class in bell-bottom jeans. Up at the blackboard, the English teacher's wearing them too. A psychedelic school bus rolling down the street. Uh, That wasn't the merry pranksters distributing LSD. That was the Partridge family singing Come On, Get Happy in a wholesome TV sitcom. Come on, get happy. America just couldn't get enough of that groovy counterculture. Except for the politics. America wanted no part of the politics. A Gallup public opinion poll from 1970 recorded single-digit approval ratings for the weathermen. They came in one point higher than the ultra-right-wing John Birch Society. And that was about as far as it went. The weathermen predicted a revolution, and they were half right. Their political revolution died a morning, but the cultural revolution, the commodification and mainstreaming of rock-slash-youth culture... That revolution was a complete and total victory by 1970. The fashion, the music, that hippie aesthetic were all put to work serving the almighty God of the marketplace. Radical and extreme became buzzwords for selling laundry soap and soda pop. Right about that time, people. A fur trapper who was strictly from commercial. On TV, The Mod Squad was a hit primetime cop show. Sitcoms like The Partridge Family and Saturday morning cartoons like Josie and the Pussycats, uh, the first kids show that featured a black woman as a main character, by the way, at the movies. The Woodstock documentary was a smash, critically acclaimed, and it was one of the highest grossing films of 1970. On Broadway, Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar were long-running hits, and they hit the road to play to packed houses in Peoria and Biloxi. For better or worse, from now until forever, rock and roll is commodified. It will also become increasingly professionalized. It's beyond ironic. A form of expression that set out to subvert the dominant paradigm has become the dominant paradigm. Diet Coke... Get that Coca-Cola taste, but without the calories. Commercial rock. Get that revolutionary feeling, uh, but without the um, eh, actual revolution. It's the way of things now. 
keep you doped with religion and sex and TV And you think you're so clever and classless and free But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see Working class hero is something to be Okay, that's kind of harsh, a bit cynical, we realize. It's not like rock music just all of a sudden started sucking right around 1970. Uh, Very much to the contrary, the early 70s kick ass musically. And before long, we'll see a counter-counter-revolution led by a new generation of rockers. And we've already met a couple of them, Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders and Jerry Casale of Devo. But it's worth a discussion, this thing we choose to call the rock paradox. It takes many forms, like the paradox of making big bucks off of something that is explicitly and very loudly anti-capitalist. The song we just played, Working Class Hero, by John Lennon, is an example. The absolute classic case. In just a few years, in early 1973, Money by Pink Floyd will be a major worldwide hit. This biting critique of capitalist greed will be a commercial smash that anchors one of the most consequential and profitable rock albums ever made. Here's another one. In its early years, rock and roll got much of its dynamism from the tension between the mainstream and the underground. By 1970, it's big enough to contain the mainstream and the alternative, the fake and the authentic, all within the same industry. Now they're just competing factions under the same umbrella. An industry that manufactures what can't be manufactured, what the rock writer Lester Bangs, in one of his more acerbic missives, called the industry of cool. And yet another one. 70s glam rock artists will send up the very idea of rock stardom, celebrate it even as they harshly critique it. It hits peak paradox with 1971's Ziggy Stardust, wherein the rock star David Bowie offers up a cautionary tale about being a rock star. Starting here, in the 1970s and going forward, rock will oftentimes be defined by its own contradictions. We can always count on Motown to bring the fun, even in a tough transitional kind of year like 1970. But there's a darker context around Motown's offering of fluffy pop fun. The Jackson 5 put out three number one singles in 1970, but Edwin Starr's War on the Motown subsidiary Tom Law topped them all in sales and airplay by year's end. Ball of Confusion by The Temptations was also a big hit in 70, and it became one of the Temps' signature tunes. They're mixing a socially conscious message with funk and soul and psychedelic rock now, busy clearing out the landing zone for the imminent arrival of the Parliament Funkadelic Mothership. The incomparable Transcendent Stevie Wonder scored his own smash in 1970 with Signed Sealed Delivered. But well before the year is done, 
Stevie will be back at work on a tougher sound, on songs that pointedly address the gritty realities of life in black America. At Motown in Detroit and Stax in Memphis, two-thirds of the soul triangle we described back in chapters 6 and 13, the music of black America is transitioning again, taking in current events, responding to them, and brewing up something a lot tougher and far more topical than ABC, easy as one, two, three. Early morning, December 4th, 1969. Backed by the FBI, Chicago police wielding shotguns and submachine guns raided the apartment of 21-year-old Fred Hampton. Fred was chair of the Illinois Black Panthers and the deputy chair of the National Panthers. He was murdered by police while he slept beside his girlfriend, Deborah, nine months pregnant with their son. No warning, no knock, they just kicked in the door and started shooting. Over 100 shots were fired. One shot, one, came from Fred's bodyguard, 22-year-old Mark Clark, sitting by the front door, cradling a shotgun. Mark discharged his shotgun harmlessly into the floor as he fell over dead in a hail of bullets. The rest of the shots all came from the cops. It took 25 years to uncover the facts, but thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, we now know it was pure murder a premeditated government hit sanctioned at the highest levels. With malice aforethought, an undercover FBI agent dosed Fred's food with a sedative the night before to make sure he was fast asleep when the Chicago PD made their pre-dawn raid. Under Fred Hampton's leadership, the Illinois Panthers organized free meals for school kids. They started a free clinic on the South Side and raised awareness about sickle cell anemia. Fred advocated violence only in self-defense and committed the Panthers to cooperating with other groups to bring about systemic social change. None of that mattered. To the FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon, Fred Hampton was deemed a radical threat to be terminated with extreme prejudice. The Illinois Attorney General, after a perfunctory internal investigation, ruled Hampton's police murder a justifiable homicide. There was no federal investigation. We'll come back to this story and the music around it in a later chapter. Right now, it's meant to illustrate a point about backlash and about state-sponsored violence. Bad as it was in Chicago, at Kent State and elsewhere, white college kids were just getting a little taste of what black America had been enduring for many generations. Slipping into darkness 
Early spring of 1970, four of the whitest dudes around, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, released their long-awaited follow-up album, Deja Vu. It was the product of about 800 cocaine-fueled hours in the recording studio, about twice as much time as the Beatles spent on Sgt. Pepper. Deja Vu shipped up 2 million units on release. It was multi-platinum right out of the gate. Deja Vu sold huge, but it was overcooked and overcooked, produced to the nth degree. The soaring harmonies and tight production values were there, but Deja Vu had little of the charm and authenticity that made CSN's debut so special. The title cut is amazing, one of Crosby's finest. It's also a cut-and-paste studio creation that couldn't really be replicated live. Stephen Stills' arrangement of Joni Mitchell's Woodstock turned her folky meditation into a balls-out majestic rock anthem. Graham Nash's Teach Your Children is sweetly idealistic, kind of like Graham is, and it's propelled along by Jerry Garcia's exquisite pedal steel track. And of course, throughout the album, those spine-tingling vocal harmonies. Carry on, love is coming, love is coming to us all. So, Deja Vu is not without its moments, but it's got some real clunkers on it, too. Graham Nash's cloyingly, sickly sweet Our House is enough to induce diabetes. For us, it's bottoms out with Almost Cut My Hair, wherein David Crosby interjects paranoid cokehead drivel into a smoking hot Stills Young guitar duel. Neil Young's contributions are slight. He was playing with Crazy Horse during the afternoons and going to the studio to cut tracks with CSNY at night. Helpless, a wistful, slow remembrance of Neil's Canadian hometown was actually a throwaway from the Crazy Horse sessions. Most of Neil's instrumental parts were stepped on in the final mix or just wiped completely. Stephen Stills oversaw the mix down without input from Neil. If Neil was put out by that, he didn't stick around to make his unhappiness known. Neil, be Neil, he was already on to the next thing. Here's Neil and the horse, and a quote from Jimmy McDonough, taken from his 2002 book, Shaky, a biography of Neil Young. March 6th and 7th, the band played a quartet of sets over at Fillmore East. And uh, these recordings capture the horse in all of their glory. You know, uh, head back and eyes closed as he wangs some brain-sick scream out of old Blackie. Young looks like he's lost in the stars. But behind the scenes, though, not everything was groovy. Come on, baby, let's go downtown, guitarist Danny Witten sings on his one contribution to the Fillmore shows. And he was alluding to his new passion in his life, which was heroin. Knocking at my cellar 
sharing the punch, taking the acid test and passing the joint. That was the 60s. Maybe I'll be there to shake your hand. Maybe I'll be there to share the land when we all live together. The 70s are off doing lines in the bathroom and I caught you knocking on my cellar door. Gone, gone, the damage done. Rock stars are multimillionaires now. Heroin and coke are in, the party favors of the new elite. Drug culture, so closely intertwined with rock culture, is no longer turn on and tune in. It's more like tune it out and turn it inward, turn it on yourself. Sometimes to the point where there's no coming back. But there's a whole decade ahead of us. Plenty of time to talk more about this stuff. We'll get there. Right now, let's check in on our college kids, Joe and Chrissy and Jerry. And you know what? Champagne, cocaine. (laughs) They're in college. They can't afford that shit in 1970 or in any other year. Cheap beer, Boone's Farm apple wine, smoke some homegrown, maybe some pep pills for finals week, and maybe a tab of acid for the show. Uh, Maybe all of the above around a weekend bonfire at the ROTC building. After the Friday afternoon rally, the crowd dispersed, but the anger didn't. On Water Street, students lit fires in trash cans, threw bottles at cop cars, disrupted traffic, and started breaking windows. Someone smashed a bank window, an alarm went off, and the cops showed up in force. At 12.30 a.m., the mayor declared a state of emergency and closed down all the downtown bars. Eh, not a bright decision. It just increased the size of the crowd gathered in the street. Combined city and county police forces used tear gas to push the crowd back to the university. It ended around 2 a.m. in a tense standoff. The city police would not cross the border onto university property, but any student who ventured even one step off a campus got roughed up and tossed in jail. Fifteen arrests were made. The following day, the mayor instituted a curfew and banned the sale of alcohol, firearms, and gasoline within the city limits. 
This is Kevin C. Smith from his 2013 book, Recombo DNA. Far from averting further violence, the measure seemed to have precisely the opposite effect. By the end of the evening, around 1,000 students, who would most likely have otherwise been downtown on a Saturday night, had gathered around the ROTC building, which had long been a source of irritation among anti-war activists. As a mob mentality took hold, the wooden structure was bombarded with a combination of rocks, garbage cans, and railroad flares. At this point, the National Guard was called in, and they quickly dispersed the crowd with more tear gas. But the ROTC building was already gutted by flame, and it would take firefighters hours to finally extinguish it. The protesters had cut the hoses. the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. Ohio Governor Stuart Rhodes was looking to move up. He was in a hotly contested race for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senator from Ohio. The primary election was three days away, on Tuesday, May 6th. He wasn't going to miss an opportunity to do some law and order grandstanding. Sunday morning, Rhodes held a press conference where he spewed incendiary rhetoric at the students. Then he pounded his desk and declared martial law on the Kent campus. He summoned a full battalion of Ohio National Guard to make it stick. All demonstrations were banned, and the guardsmen were ordered to shoot on sight looters and anyone seen cutting fire hoses. Monday morning was tense, but quiet. Classes resumed, but were cut short at 10.30 a.m., The word started to spread around campus. The rally scheduled for noon was on. Guard or no guard, ban or no ban. accounts of the Kent State Massacre. The story's been well told elsewhere. We refer you to the show notes for links to our research. The simple facts tell the story pretty well. At 12.24 p.m., a company, 116 soldiers of the Ohio National Guard, lined up, raised their rifles, and fired into a dense crowd of unarmed students. At the time they opened fire, the nearest student was at least 50 feet away. 13 seconds. 67 shots, nine seriously wounded, one of them paralyzed for life, and four dead. For the killers, there would be no consequences. Nobody was ever arrested, fined, demoted, or disciplined in any way for the events at Kent State that day. Jerry Casale saw them raise rifles and thought it was a joke, a bluff. The guardsmen were just posturing. Then they opened fire. He turned to run and immediately saw 19-year-old Allison Krauss crumple to the ground, fatally wounded. 
As soon as the shooting stopped, one of the guardsmen got on a bullhorn and ordered everyone to stay put. Don't move. Shaking, Jerry sat down and saw and heard a girl about thirty feet away, kneeling and gesturing wildly, screaming for help. Only later, when he saw the photograph, did he realize that it was Mary Ann Vecchio kneeling over the body of twenty-year-old Jeffrey Miller. That shot, taken by photojournalist and Kent State grad John Philo, is one of the iconic images of the twentieth century. It won him a Pulitzer Prize. Amid the smoke and chaos of the aftermath, Chrissy Hine just shut down. She knew Jeffrey Miller. He was dating one of Chrissy's girlfriends. She just sat down, cross-legged on the grass, and wouldn't move. Some friends found her there in a near-catatonic state. They softly spoke to her, gently picked her up, and carried her away to safety. Later that day, Chrissy caught a ride back to her parents' house in Akron. Chrissy never went back to college. Joe Walsh was running late for the rally. He was hurrying around the corner of a nearby building when he heard what he thought was a string of firecrackers. Then the screams reached him, the panic. The horror of the situation quickly sunk in, and Joe knew right away he would not be finishing school at Kent State. The whole town, the whole scene just died. Joe said in a 2020 interview with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast. He accepted the tour offer, left, and never looked back. Kent State University was evacuated completely and closed for nearly a month. As a graduating senior, Jerry Casali came back to campus one last time to pick up his diploma. All I can tell you is that it completely and utterly changed my life. He said in 2003, I was a white hippie boy, and then I saw exit wounds from M1 rifles out of the backs of two people I knew. There's a time-tested formula for pop songs. Tell a good story to a strong beat, come up with a sing-along hook for a chorus, lather, rinse, repeat. Folks have been doing it for as long as we can remember. Using that formula to excess anger and convey anguish is something else entirely, though. Only the most gifted writers can take those feelings and weave them into a hit song that becomes an enduring cultural artifact. Neil Young is one of those. That's the rare company he keeps as a songwriter. About a week after the Kent State shootings, on May 12th, CSNY did a concert in Denver, a warm-up show for a national summer tour. Neil had been touring all spring with Crazy Horse, honing and refining the songs that would inhabit his third solo album after The Gold Rush, released in August 1970, and his sublime 1972 release, Harvest. Neil felt easy, felt at home playing with the horse. He didn't really need CSNY, didn't much want to mess with it, any of it. But a deal's a deal. Neil reluctantly told the fellas in Crazy Horse to sit tight a few months while he toured with David and Stephen and Graham. They made it through one night. 
The Denver show was a shambolic, disjointed performance. The audience didn't seem to notice or care. They loved it anyway. But their rapturous response didn't fool Neil one bit. It just pissed him off even more. The other guys knew it was a bust, too. Afterwards, Graham Nash asked an angry rhetorical question of his bandmates. If the music's not there, then why the fuck would we want to do it in front of people? Nobody had a good answer. Over the next few days, the tour was on again and off again several times. Only the personal intervention of Amit Erdogan, the president of Atlantic Records, saved it. Amit reminded the boys that halls were sold out, reservations were made, staff was hired, and millions of dollars were down the drain if the tour abruptly canceled. Amit gave his temperamental superstars the rock and roll version of you guys do that and you'll never work in this town again. The four of them managed to set ego and grievance aside and agreed to give it another go. Rehearsals would begin May 21st in L.A. Here's the Rolling Stone writer David Brown from his excellent 2019 biography of CSNY. The group scattered briefly to look its collective wounds, with Crosby and Young heading north to the Redwoods-encased Pescadero. On the morning of May 19th, four days after the band meeting, someone at the house went for groceries. And at the time, the country's most popular photo-driven news weekly was Life magazine. Tragedy at Kent read the cover line, uh, next to a photo of students leaning over the body of a fallen man. The photos that took up 11 pages of the magazine offered a visceral chronicle of the event. As Crosby watched, Young picked up a guitar and, in short order, wrote and sang a song he called Ohio, about soldiers, Nixon, and students being gunned down. Three weeks after the shooting, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young convened for a late-night recording session at the record plant in Hollywood. After a few run-throughs, they went ahead and rolled tape for several takes. Interestingly, it was recorded like Neil Young tends to do things, live in the studio, even the vocals. Stephen thought it should have one more verse, but he minded his own and contented himself with playing some hot guitar and singing backups. After a few hours, they went with one of the early takes because they all loved David's anguished cries during the final chant of Forward Dead in Ohio. Crosby damn near broke the microphone on that one. Eleven days later, Atlantic released Ohio as a single. The B-side was an acoustic gem written by Stephen Stills, Find the Cost of Freedom. It peaked at number 14. A lot of mainstream radio stations wouldn't play Ohio, but that probably helped it sell. It just added to the buzz around the song. Some call it the last great protest song. Not really. There have been others since then. Neil's own Rockin' to the Free World comes to mind immediately, or Green Day's American Idiot, or, for that matter, 2018's This Is America by Daniel Glover. Insanely great songs, all of them, but we can't think of a protest song since 1970 that was so highly specific and immediate. In that regard, Ohio is definitely unique. Uh, 
great fucking song too, by the way. We love it when Neil Young spits out some righteous anger. So we'll put down a marker here. This is an inflection point. So, diggers, if you're tired of all our talk about the new left in America and its ties to rock and roll, well, we've got some great news for you. Uh, That discussion is wrapping up. Like Hunter S. Thompson said, uh, we've quoted him a couple of times now, the wave crested and it crashed and it rolled back. We will continue to place rock music and rock artists into the cultural and social context of the times, but we'll approach it from other angles from here on out. We're just going to leave this right here. We're moving on to distant lands now, and here's a little taste of what's next. And if I say to you tomorrow... Take my hand, child, come with me I'm Christian Swain, and this is Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep up the rockin'. I guess the wind has been sailed away, leave the day way up high in the sky. Rock and Roll Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at PantheonPodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social. At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.